like to make uh, four general observations in the light of events in Baltimore. One, there is no excuse for, nor should there be any tolerance of looting, rioting, and violence. Among the distressing reactions to this distressing week is an effort on the part of some to excuse or diminish the gravity of the violent protest. Violence is the only thing that will wake America up, they say. Destroying property and burning businesses is a legitimate practice, they contend. Violence has been the only tactic that has secured civil liberties, they argue. If nonviolence fails to win the people over, then it is futile. We must reject this philosophy out of hand. It is both immoral and impractical. One of the truly disingenuous tactics of those promoting a little violence from time to time, or a lot of violence, is to suggest that the father of this tactic, or at least its enabler, was Martin Luther King. It's absurd. King insisted throughout his career that violence was both immoral and counterproductive. He endured enormous pressure in the black community, and nonetheless, he insisted on nonviolence. He said this, I am convinced that for practical as well as moral reasons, nonviolence offers the only road to freedom for my people. The American racial revolution has been a revolution to get in rather than to overthrow. We want to share in the American economy, the housing market, the educational system, and social opportunities. If one is to search for a better job, it does no help to burn down the factory. If one needs more adequate education, shooting the principal will not help. Or if housing is the goal, only building and construction will produce that end. To destroy can bring us no closer to the goal that we seek. If you exercise your constitutionally protected right to protest, and you attack people and property, you are undermining the very thing that you seek to promote. It is to mistreat the thing that you support. It is to champion things to the point of becoming their enemy. It is to become so pro that you are con. The human potential for chaos and anarchy is so high that from the beginning, Judaism urged us, pray for the welfare of the government. For were it not for respect of the government, people would eat each other alive. Were it not for the government's enforcement of the rule of law, as Thomas Hobbes wrote, there would be continual fear of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. But it is not enough simply to deplore the violence that has erupted in various cities throughout the United States. We must also ask ourselves, what are its causes? Two, police. The police are us. We cannot do without them. Their role is to protect society's justifiable need for law and order. Cops are real people, not caricatures. They, too, have strengths 
and weaknesses, fears and foibles, pride and prejudices. They have an exceedingly difficult job that will earn them critics whatever they do. Often they are called upon to make instantaneous judgments that from the quiet clarity of a later investigation are deemed wrong and excessive. With all my sympathy and support for them, police and security forces in the United States and the local and federal governments that oversee them must do some searing soul-searching. It is unacceptable for anyone to die in police custody while restrained. It is unacceptable to use excessive force. It is unacceptable to shoot first. Shooting must be the last resort when there is a real and present danger or harm to officers or others. We need as much transparency as possible. We need as much training as possible. We need the best possible laws, regulations, policies, and oversight. The police themselves have an interest to have the support of the community. They have an interest in casting out the bad cops and optimally training the good cops. They have the guns. Unfortunately, in this country, they do not have a monopoly on guns. That's part of the problem. Too many guns on the streets of the United States. But it is the police who have the awesome power of the government that will either preserve, protect, defend, and enhance liberty, or steamroll and trample over our hard-earned rights. There are too many instances of police brutality and excessive force. I suspect that it has always been prevalent, but modern technology, the widespread use of cameras that every American carries nowadays, has brought to light practices that we either did not know about or preferred to ignore. To be Anti-bad police is not to be anti-police. To the contrary, in the end, if policing does not, does not have the people's support, it does not serve the people. And to lose the people's support is the first step towards tyranny. Three, prejudice. We have come a long way in this country. We are not in the pre-civil rights era. Look around. The President of the United States is African American. The Attorney General of the United States is African American. The Mayor of Baltimore is African American. Half of the Baltimore City Council is African American. The President of the Baltimore City Council is African American. The Chief of the Baltimore Police is African American. Roughly half of the Baltimore police force is African-American. The Baltimore state attorney who decided to bring charges against the police officers is an African-American. Those who argue that nothing has changed since the 1960s simply do not know of what they speak or are purposely distorting the reality. 
But those who remind us that we still have a long way to go in this country are not wrong. Those who remind us that America has never overcome its original sin of racism are not wrong. You do not have to protest that you are not prejudiced. All of us are prejudiced. As Clarence Darrow said to a criminal jury, we are a bundle of prejudices. We are prejudiced against other people's color. We are prejudiced against other people's religion. We are prejudiced against other people's politics. We are prejudiced against other people's looks. We are prejudiced against other people's dress. We are full of prejudices. If you look deep enough, you will find them. And we know it. All of the peaceful protests and marches in response to police misconduct, these do not so much create social tensions as expose what already exists, bringing them out into the light of day where we can disinfect the wound and treat the illness. It's not only a question of racism. There are too many other factors involved, but racism is part of the problem too. And our continuing efforts to eradicate this scourge is part of the solution. Law and law enforcement must serve the cause of justice. If either the law or the enforcement of the law is unequal, if it harms or degrades the dignity or the standing of one person or one group of persons because of some racial, ethnic, religious, social, or gender bias, such laws or their enforcement are unjust. To treat people differently, whether in code or conduct, because of some racial, ethnic, gender, or sexual bias, is to assume a conviction of superiority that we are better than others simply because of our innate characteristics. To assume that certain people are innately inferior to us. That they are incarcerated at three times the rate that we are. Not because of environmental factors, but because of their race, is racism. And racism distorts everything that is good about the human race. It subverts the basic religious and Western principle that all are endowed with equal dignity and equal worth and all are created in the image of God. Four, poverty. Poor people can be educated. Poor people can be productive. Poor people can be employed. Poor people can be law-abiding. Poor people can be generous. In fact, studies indicate that as a percentage of income, poor Americans are more charitable than wealthy Americans. 
Poor people can have strong families. Poor people can have supportive communities. Poor people can be successful. It's just harder for them, much harder, to casually and cavalierly offer helpful tips to the poor people of Baltimore or Ferguson that they should really be more like me, it's kind of insulting, don't you think? It is to ignore what it really means to be poor. As the Bible states, all of the days of the poor are wretched. The ruin of the poor is poverty. If all the afflictions of the world were assembled on one side of the scale and poverty were to be on the other, poverty would outweigh all of the other afflictions of the world, say the rabbis. We struggle to assert some fundamental distinction between ghetto communities and gated communities. But generally, the truth is much simpler. The poor are different than us because they're poor. If they had the opportunities that we had, they would probably not be poor, and they would probably function like the unpoor. Now it is true that social science is not natural science. One thing does not necessarily lead to another in all cases. Robert Durst, a highly educated multimillionaire many times over, is still, according to the prosecutor, a sadistic murderer. But broadly speaking, poverty is a disgrace. It is a disgrace for our country, the most affluent society in the history of the world, that cannot seem to solve the problem not for lack of resources or resourcefulness, but for lack of political will. And poverty is a disgrace for the individual. The poor who live amongst the affluent live in a different world. A world of hunger, hurt, and haunting humiliation. Honestly, to say to them, you should be more like me. Me, who had the best schooling, the best parents, the best friends, the best, most supportive family, the best security, the best food, the best clothing, the best shelter, the best of everything. To say to those who are deprived of basic needs that we take for granted every day, you should be more like me, is to distort their condition and yours. Do you think that the poor 
prefer being unemployed, not working? There are some. Some people prefer living off the largesse of others. But how many people are there, really, who want to do nothing? Unemployment, not finding a job when you want to work, is even more devastating emotionally than financially. In Jewish thought, work is dignity. Six days you should work, states the Bible, and on the seventh you should rest. Love work, urged the rabbis. No person should hate work. Great is labor, states the Talmud. It honors the person who performs it. Rabbi Yose said a person dies through idleness alone. Most people want to be productive. Most people want to contribute. Most people want to live off the sweat of their brow, not the charity of another. Now, it is true that government cannot solve everything. It is true that collective actions are not a panacea. It is true that money cannot solve everything. It is true that people need to take responsibility for themselves. They need to police themselves. They need to discipline themselves toward moral conduct. They need to parent their own children, not hand them over to the nanny state. But there are some social problems that are so vast that they can only be solved through collective action and collective policies reflecting and assuming collective will. We all know that our political and economic systems need improvement. We all know that along with a significant progress that we have made in this country, we need to continue to work towards greater equality of opportunity, jobs, security, and civil liberties for all. As FDR famously said, Freedom also includes freedom from want and freedom from fear. In Jewish tradition, we read of a king who said to a great sage, if your God loves the needy, why doesn't he provide for them for, him, from, for himself? And the sage responded, God who loves both the rich and the poor wants one human being to help another, and to make the world a household of love. This is our true goal, to make the world a household of love. Our central dream is to reach the dream recited in the book of Psalms. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell in peace. We are at our best when we practice both individual and collective responsibility, when we remember that we are our brother's keeper. What is hateful to us, we do not do unto others. We are at our best 
when we acknowledge the brokenness of our world and work towards its repair. We are at our best when we emphasize hope, not despair, when we assert not what separates us, but what binds us together in a common thread of humanity. We are all interconnected and interdependent. No matter what is the law, no matter what is the tax code, what is the policy, in the end, if our neighbors are not free, we are not free. Unless they are peaceful, we cannot live in peace. Unless they are law-abiding, it matters little what is the law. In the end, my freedom comes from the willingness of my neighbor to grant me freedom. Now more than ever, we must develop the art of living together. For with the advance of science and technology, if we will not live together in peace, we will all die together in violent annihilation. There is a Jewish legend of a son walking with his father. The boy is distressed as they pass hungry beggars on the street. This is terrible, the boy said to his father. How could God allow this? Why doesn't God send help? God did send help. The father responded, God has sent you. Thank you.